Hello and welcome. This is Artist Unknown, a series of talks exploring objects and works of art from across the University of Cambridge collections, where the maker, as sometimes read on a label, is Artist Unknown. Why are they unknown? Is it important that we know? And how much can an object tell us about the person who made it? In this episode, we meet Suzanne Turner from the Museum of Classical Archaeology, whose cast of the head of Apollo raises questions about artistic license and originality. Hi, I'm Suzanne Turner and I'm the curator at the Museum of Classical Archaeology in Cambridge. The head of Apollo from the Museum of Classical Archaeology in Cambridge is a hybrid object. It is both ancient and modern. Its artists are unknown twice over. The head of Apollo was part of a complex programme of decoration adorning the mausoleum of Halicarnassus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It has no inscription identifying who made it, no telltale signature or maker's mark. The object on display, however, is a plaster cast, purchased from the Great London Plaster Cast Workshop, or Formatore, Bucciani and Company, by the Fitzwilliam Museum in 1884 to adorn its newly founded Museum of Classical and General Archaeology. There, the cast became part of an expanding collection of copies of Greek and Roman sculpture, testament not only to the legacy of antique visual and collecting culture, but also to the teaching of classical archaeology in the university which had only recently been added to the classical tripos, the examination which conferred a Cambridge degree. According to Pliny, a Roman historian writing his natural histories in the 70s CE, four named sculptors were responsible for the tomb's sculptural decoration. Scopus, Briaxis, Timotheus and Laocares, and each took one side to adorn. Another Roman writer, Vitruvius, includes a fifth artist, Praxiteles, and adds that they all competed to outdo each other with their sculptural creations. Of these artists, very little is known, certainly not the type of biographical detail we're used to using to flesh out artistic intentions of Renaissance and later artists. The head of Apollo is most often attributed to Scopus, who Pliny says carved the figures on the east, and the artist of whom we probably know the most. We know he was born in Paros, a Greek island famous for its beautiful white marble, and he was responsible for the design of the temple of Alea Athena at Tegea in the Greek Peloponnese. Greek sculptors were itinerant, moving around for each new project, and Scopus was working in Rome as well as Greece. We know he didn't just build and decorate temples. He was also in demand for figures in the round. Pliny says he created an especially praised vesta for the gardens of Sevilius in Rome, and for Samothrace he made a Venus and Pothos, that's the personification of desire or longing. And then he outdid himself in a sculptural group of Poseidon and his watery Theasos, which were later taken to Rome. None of these much-vaunted sculptural groups survive. We know of them only through texts. Some battered fragments from the Temple of Athena Alea have withstood the years, but it is a statuette of a twisting and ecstatic Mynad, absorbed in her dancing devotion to Dionysus, who has the best claim to at least being a later Roman copy of a statue by Scopas. A copy of this statue can be viewed in the Museum of Classical Archaeology's cast gallery. This identification too, however, depends on a written source. Scopas, as if moved by some divine inspiration, imparted into the making of this statue the divine frenzy that possessed him, says Callistratos, 
and also writing his own literary description, or ekrasis, of the statue in the 3rd or 4th century CE. Scopas, then, is often associated with an especially energetic style. Some scholars have thought they can see the great man's hand in the Apollo's deep-set eyes or the turn to his neck, which suggests a movement and energy now lost since the original body no longer survives. Much of the association of ancient sculptures with named artists involves this kind of close attention to telling details, a certain connoisseurial gaze. Rare is the ancient statue whose sculptor is neatly identified in an inscription, partly because so many ancient masterpieces are identified through later Roman copies. Most Greek originals, especially those originally sculpted in bronze, have failed to survive. As a result, it is difficult to write a history of ancient art constructed around the genius of individual artists, as we might do for other time periods, although that doesn't mean that no one has tried, nor that the identification of masters and their works hasn't been an important academic discourse in the study of classical sculpture. The desire to associate surviving sculptures with named artists is strong. The lure of this type of identification, and perhaps the security it provides, pulls at our imaginations scholar, student and museum visitor alike. But can we really see Scopus' hand in the Apollo? Or do we just want to? And does it matter if we do, given that Scopus is just a shadow glimpsed through a glass darkly in just a few fleeting textual illusions? This type of identification is often a house of cards, built from such limited evidence that it is ready to collapse under the slightest pressure. It will come as no surprise that this is especially true of the head of Apollo. Vitruvius was writing around 300 years after the mausoleum was constructed, Pliny more like 400. Neither is a primary source for the construction of the mausoleum at least, and it's not clear who or what their sources were, or indeed how reliable they were. The trope of artists competing against one another is a common one. It's easy to see how, over the course of the centuries, a certain mythology might have built up, conveyed by guides around a monument which, by the Roman period, was something of a tourist site. The sheer size and scale of the decoration on the mausoleum must have been impressive. It was decorated with huge numbers of freestanding figures in several sizes, most now lost as well as three friezes wrapping around the circumference of the monument. And there's another conundrum. The Latin word Pliny uses to describe the work of his named sculptors is caelare, which means to carve in relief or engrave. It's not clear whether this means his attribution was never actually intended to apply to the freestanding works like the Apollo. In any case, even if we take the sculptors named by Pliny and Vitruvius at face value, there is no way for just four or five men to have sculpted all of this on their own, no matter their artistic genius. More likely, the master sculptors, whoever they were, each worked with large teams of assistants and apprentices on particular segments of the decoration, as attested in the records from the building of the Temple of Asclepius at Epidauros, for instance. Most of those working on the mausoleum sculpture, then, are now nameless and forgotten, not important enough to make it into the textual record. Probably we won't ever know who sculpted the Apollo, no matter how closely we scrutinise the eye sockets or the Adam's apple. Ironically, the same is true of the maker or makers of the plaster cast on display. It is all too easy to think of casts as cheap and readily available imitations, products of the age of mechanical reproduction. 
but a master plaster craftsman took seven years to learn how to make high-quality casts, from the mould to the pouring to the finishing. And that's the same amount of time as a doctor trains today. Even now, making plaster casts is a highly skilled job, although fewer workshops remain. And every plaster cast is a unique and hand-finished object, and a high-quality original cast, that's a strange hybrid term used to denote a cast whose moulds were taken directly from the original artefact, differs from its original by no more than 0.1 of a millimetre. No one, however, has recorded the name of the plaster craftsman who made the head of the Apollo. In the true tradition of a cast collection, our catalogue records more information about the originals than it does about their copies. The casts are just a mirror through which we might glimpse their prototypes. But we can take a guess at who might have made this particular cast. In 1884, when the cast was purchased, Bretani and Company was led by the former Tory Joseph Lewis Caproni. Domenico Bretani, the founder of the workshop, had died in 1880, and Caproni was an executor of his will, who took on the running of the business until Domenico's grandson by marriage, Paul Joseph Ryan, was old enough to take over in 1901. Of course, we don't know when the moulds for the head of the Apollo were made, but it would be fair to think that Caproni had a hand in the making of the cast for the Fitzwilliam Museum. If you visit the British Museum today, you will find an original which looks rather different to the cast on display in Artist Unknown. The old plaster fills between the four fragments which make up the original head have been removed, meaning that our cast now captures the original in an earlier phase of its modern restoration and display. Thank you, Suzanne, for casting a new light and giving us a head start on a fascinating topic. This series of talks is born from a Kettles Yard exhibition in collaboration with the University of Cambridge Museums, titled Artist Unknown. It brings together works of art from across the university's collections from July to September 2019. If you're listening during that time period and a trip is possible, make sure to visit Thanks for listening.